Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, Good morning, Cross Point. If you have a Bible, open it to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 will be our text this morning. I realize that several of you have let us know that there is a bit of a lag between the audio and the video. If that's distracting to you, then maybe just don't look at the screen and maybe look outside at the beautiful spring day and listen as we consider God's word in this text, Hebrews 4 and verse 15, where we're going to peer through the lens of this text into the heart of Christ. Let me read our text, and instead of just verse 15, I'm going to read verses 14 and 16 together with it. So let me read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Listen to these words from the writer of Hebrews. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed Through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In just a moment, we're going to focus in on verse 15 and consider the heart of Christ. But before we do that, let me give you the the impetus, the reason for this text and why we want to consider it this morning. As all of us know, it goes without saying that we are living in a time of stress. Regardless of your opinions about the coronavirus and our national reaction to it, this is, for all of us, on one level or another, a stressful time. Some of us are stressed because of the fear of contracting the virus. It's a, it's a health stress, maybe for ourselves or for a loved one. Others are stressed because they are stressed about the financial consequences of this international shutdown and what this will do to, to the, the markets and to, to even the viability maybe of their businesses or their jobs. Both of these fears are valid. Some are stressed that people don't care enough about other people's health. And so those that are maybe stressed about health are, are stressed also that others don't seem to care. And then there are those that are stressed maybe about more some economic concern that are stressed about the fact that they think that, that we're making too big of a deal out of it. Not only are they stressed about the economy, but they're stressed about the fact that they think everybody's making too big a deal about this. And then there are some that don't necessarily fall into either of these categories, and they're just nevertheless missing friends and family and wondering what the future will hold and are therefore stressed and anxious. Friends, these are all of us, I think, can admit are stressful times. And times of stress often have two effects on us. They make us discouraged and they make us difficult. And what I mean by difficult is cranky, grumpy, cynical, negative, impatient, and judgmental. We tend to be discouraged or difficult. Those are the the two often reactions to times of stress. Discouragement 
can cause us to lose ground in our battle and our fight against sin and doubt. And being difficult makes us less helpful and able to help our brothers and sisters who are struggling with increased discouragement over sin and doubt. And so I want us to think about this text this morning. I want us to zero in on verse 15, and I want us to consider what this verse tells us about the heart of Christ. Let me read verse 15 again, and I think there's two headings to what I want it to be our outline for this morning for our look at verse 15. Let me read verse 15 again. This, this is speaking of Jesus. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's two headings for our outline this morning. Very simple. Number one, he is tender to his people. And number two, his people should be tender to one another. I think this text gives us a picture a view into the heart of Christ. In fact, that's the title of the sermon. And I'm getting that from an old Puritan pastor, Thomas Goodwin, who wrote a book, who wrote a sermon that became a book, The Heart of Christ. Oftentimes, Puritan sermons would become books because the Puritans would take just one verse and they would wring that verse dry of everything that's in it. And it would eventually become a manuscript, which became a book. And Thomas Goodwin, whose book, The Heart of Christ, that I am relying on much as I was preparing my heart for this message, was actually a longer title. Listen to this beautiful Puritan title of this sermon that I'm entitling The Heart of Christ, that that he had a longer title. This is what he entitled his sermon on Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. I love this. He says, he called his sermon, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, or a treatise demonstrating the gracious disposition and tender affection of Christ in his human nature, now in glory, unto his members, under all sorts of infirmities, either sin or misery." Well, that's a beautiful Puritan title. For our purposes in 2020, we're just going to condense it down to looking at the heart of Christ. So let's look at this text before we consider his tenderness and then our tenderness in response. First, what does the text plainly tell us? It tells us that Christ is our high priest. This means that Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son represents us to God the Father. He is a mediator. And when the text in Hebrews 4 calls Jesus a high priest, it's evoking the image of the Old Testament priests and what their role was. The role of the Old Testament priest was to be a mediating role between the God, the holy God of Israel, and the people of Israel. They were to go between God and the people to offer sacrifices for the people's sin. All Old Testament priests really are a kind of shadow pointing forward to Christ. And that's much of what the book of Hebrews is about. I hope someday soon, maybe, Lord willing, to be able to preach through the beautiful book of Hebrews. And much of it is an explanation of how Christ is the true and better fulfillment of the Old Testament priesthood. Christ has become the one true priest, the one who goes between us and God. He's God himself. But he's also the one that goes between God and us because not only is he God, but he's truly man. In fact, that's what 1 Timothy says. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So this text tells us that Christ is our mediating high priest. It tells us also that we are are weak. 
He's a high priest who is acquainted with our weaknesses. He is not unable to sympathize. And so we understand that we are weak, that Jesus is representing us in our weakness before God. The old King James Version, which I love, some of the language is so beautiful. Instead of the word weakness, it translates it as the word infirmities. What does the writer of Hebrews mean by weaknesses, or as the King James says, infirmities? I think this encompasses both afflictions from without, trials that we experience in this fallen world, and sin from within. So when the word infirmities or weaknesses is used there, it's speaking both of external trials and internal temptations. And Jesus is acquainted with this weakness that we feel. In short, what is in view here is the struggle of all of life. We all know this struggle. We are all weak because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God. The scripture is clear that we are in this place. We are separated from God. We are weak. In fact, we are incapacitated, unable to approach God on our own because of our sin, our weakness. G.K. Chesterton, who was a contemporary of of C.S. Lewis uh, back in England, he said he was a famous writer. He said that this doctrine of original sin, that we have all rebelled against God and are separated from him and then now are all incapacitated and deal with sin, he said that it is really the only provable, empirically provable doctrine that there is. Everything else kind of takes a sort of faith But he says, you just look around the world, and even if you're not a believer, you just have to admit that the world is fallen, and we are weak. We need a high priest. And maybe in times like this, I think we will miss what God is doing in his people if we miss the opportunity to remember our weakness, our need. Friends, let's not get through this pandemic and on the other side beat our chests as if we got through it on our own. We we are weak people. And one of the things maybe that God and his kindness is doing is reminding us of our need and our dependence on him. We are weak. And finally, the text tells us that Jesus is a high priest who is sympathetic with us in our weakness because he has been tempted like us yet without sin. A couple chapters earlier in Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us why Jesus had to be tempted in this way, why he had to identify with us in this way. Hebrews 2 verse 17 and 18 says, therefore he, speaking of Jesus, this high priest, our great high priest, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, friends, this is a deep well, and it's beyond the scope of our, of our message to plumb the depths of this well about Jesus' identification with us and what the nature of his temptation was in spite of his, in, in the midst of his sinlessness and how he identifies with us in his sinlessness and in our sin. It's a deep well. But let's just take a quick note here. We may be tempted 
as we all understand that the scriptures affirm that Jesus is tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, we might be tempted to conclude from that that Jesus doesn't really know what we're facing because he has a sinless nature. He's God. Yes, he's man, but he's God. And so has he really been acquainted with my weaknesses? Does he really understand the force of the temptations that we feel? Well, an illustration that has been offered many times in the past that I think is helpful for us to understand just how, how much Jesus can identify with us in his humanity is the illustration of two people, two men that are walking in the face of hurricane winds. They are walking in the face of winds over 100 miles an hour, and one man lays down, he succumbs to the wind, and the other man keeps walking all the way to the end of the hurricane. Now, we are like that man that lays down early on in his journey. We give in to the force of our temptation. And how, how foolish would it be of the man who gave in to the, to the force of the wind to say to the man who walked for miles and miles and miles until the hurricane died down, to say to the man who didn't lay down, you don't really know what it is to give in. No, the man that walked the full length but never gave in understands even more than the man who gave in and laid down. And Jesus faced a full weight of temptation, yet without sin. No, friends, it's not that Jesus can't truly identify with us because he never sinned, but the fact that he faced temptation and he resisted it for all of his life and never laid down but stood up in his righteousness means he's more acquainted with the forces the winds of temptation that are against us. And what the text tells us is that has made him a sympathetic, a merciful high priest who can identify with his people. But notice that word in our text that we read a little earlier, Hebrews 2. It says he could do, he'd be a high priest that would make propitiation. In the Old Testament, the priests would be the one that goes between God and man, but they would bring a sacrifice, and that sacrifice would be a spotless lamb or an animal. But Jesus is not only the priest, he's also the sacrifice. So what he's laying down is his perfect resistance, his perfect endurance, his sinless life, and he not only is the priest, but the sacrifice that he's bringing is himself. And so not only has he resisted temptation, but he also has borne the wrath of God on our behalf. That's what the cross is, friends. It's Jesus, our high priest, who is bringing the sacrifice of himself. And he bears, friends, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the Bible. This is the ground zero of the Christian message. That God the Father has sent God the Son to recapture, to obey, to restore righteousness in humanity to resist temptation to the end, and then to lay down the sacrifice of himself on the cross to bear the wrath of God the Father. And because Jesus isn't just a good man, he's the eternal perfect son of God, he has more than enough righteousness to satisfy all the wrath of God for all the sins of all of his people for all time. And Jesus is this high priest who has done that for us. And all of this speaks to the mercy and the sympathetic nature of Christ to his people. 
Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be mediated, to be reconciled to God, is to have a representative, Jesus, the high priest, who goes before us in compassion and mercy, God in the flesh, standing between sinful people and a holy God the Father, bringing the sacrifice of himself, canceling the wrath, and reuniting sinful people, making them righteous, and joining them to himself. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel. And all of this has produced in Jesus a tenderness towards his people, which is point one. We want to consider he is tender to his people. First, he's tender to those tossed to and fro with doubt. He is tender to those tossed to and fro with doubt. And that may be you in this time. You're, you're anxious about the future. You're wondering what life will hold on the other side of this. Listen to how Jesus deals tenderly with people that struggle with doubt. Mark chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, he, his father has brought this child to him, and Jesus' disciples were not able to, to, to exercise this demon from this child that was causing this child to, to fall down and convulse and, and have these terrible seizures. And when the father brings the child to Jesus, we see that Jesus, we, Jesus looks at this father. And immediately in verse 24, Mark 9, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And what does Jesus say to this confession of doubt, to this confession of not 100% faith? He doesn't say, go away and come back when you have the right answer. He heals the boy. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, verse 25, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Friends, do not listen to the false gospel that says you need to muster a certain amount of faith that thereby activates the hand of God. Friends, that's a lie straight from the pits of hell. Your faith is not the most decisive thing in this matter. The most decisive thing is the good and gracious, merciful, tender disposition of Jesus. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief is the cry of the doubting. My friends, you may be worrying about your future, and you may be feeling guilty about that. So not only are you dealing with doubt, but now you're dealing with condemnation and discouragement about your doubt. Friends, don't let the devil sink you in this pit. He comes near to the doubting. He draws near to the brokenhearted. Know that Christ does not cast away the trembling. He goes to the trembling and he offers them tenderness, the tenderness that flows from his heart. Secondly, he's tender to those beat up by sin. He's tender to those beat up by sin. Think about just the, 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 his, the, just the recollection of, of Jesus' interaction with people. Notice who he is tender towards in the Gospels, and notice who he is severe with. He is severe with those who are trusting in their own righteousness, who are harsh towards other people, and he is tender to those who are beat up and dragged to and fro by their own sin. We read in our t earlier on in our, at the beginning of the service, Matthew 11, verse 28, verse through 30, 
I'll read it again. It says, come to me, this is Jesus speaking, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, here in Matthew 11, verse 29, gives us the only description he gives in all of the Gospels of his own heart. And what does he say about his heart? towards sinners, and the context here is sinners. In fact, just a few verses before, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, uh, verses 20 through 25, it's talking about unrepentant sinners who are gnashing their teeth in rebellion against God. And so the context here is he's saying there will be people that are unrepentant, but you, you that are, that are acquainted with your sin, knowing how needy you are, come to me with your burden. And what does he say about his heart? He says that it's gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you think about God that way towards you? If you're in Christ, his heart towards you is gentle and lowly. In the next chapter, our text, Hebrews 4, verse 15, just a few verses later in Hebrews 5, verse 2, listen how it describes priests. And it's speaking here of the high priest, but ultimately the whole point of Hebrews is that Jesus is the true and better priest. And so this description in Hebrews chapter four, 5, verse 2 that I'm about to read is ultimately a description of Jesus. It says in Hebrews 5, verse 12, that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, when it says that Jesus is beset with weakness, we know it doesn't mean that Jesus was in any way sinful or weak in and of himself, but that in his humanity, he identifies with us. And it tells us that he deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. That's, that's the tenderness of the heart of God in Christ towards sinners. Thirdly, he, his tenderness draws him towards sinners, not away from them. His tenderness draws him toward sinners, not away from them. Something interesting, a contrast that you might notice between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's this rather extensive law code about cleanliness and uncleanliness. And there's very extensive stipulations and regulations about how people were to interact with one another based on the cleanliness or uncleanliness of a person, depending on maybe all sorts of things, what they've touched, food, all sorts of things. And Leviticus is, is a book that is devoted to cleanliness and uncleanliness, this sort of moral status of a person, depending on what they've ate or depending on what they've touched. And the thing about the Old Testament is that whenever an unclean person touches a clean person, it makes the clean person unclean. In other words, the most powerful force at work in this system is the uncleanness of the unclean, not the cleanness of the clean. And so the clean have to distance themselves from the unclean. But Jesus reverses this system. 
in the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus, in the Gospels, we see, the only, we see this reversal, this system of grace where the unclean, Jesus moves toward, and he, the one true clean one, when he touches them, he makes the unclean clean. The point is, is that Jesus doesn't move away from uncleanness in his holiness. He goes to uncleanness in his holiness. Dane Ortland in his wonderful book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, says this about this aspect of Jesus' ministry. He says, The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Friends, let's apply that to our own lives. When we are struggling, when we're dealing with sin, when we're dealing with doubt, our natural inclination is to hide, to retreat, to move away from, to distance ourselves from the people of God, to slowly, sort of slowly slink off from the church, hoping that nobody will notice us, to, to, to fall away from God. But the, but the testimony of Christ in the Gospels is that he goes towards uncleanness. He doesn't move himself away from it. Christ's heart is tender toward people who are racked with sin and doubt. And if that's you right now, friend, Jesus is not drawing away from you. He is coming to you. And his tenderness, finally, does not leave us like we are. It doesn't mean, in his tenderness, do not misunderstand tenderness with a kind of complacency with our sin or our doubt. Jesus' tenderness does not mean that he leaves us like we are. This beautiful scene of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, we see after Jesus writes in the dirt about all the people that were accusing this woman as if they were sinless, he writes in the dirt there and they see whatever he's writing in the dirt and they scatter and he tells them, whoever has no sin, let him cast the first stone. And they realize, well, it can't be me. And so all of this woman and her sin, all of her accusers leave. What does Jesus say to her? He says in John chapter 8, verse 11, neither do I condemn you, but then he says, go and from now on, sin no more. And so Jesus in his tenderness doesn't leave us like we are, but when we see the beauty of Jesus' tenderness, the beauty of his grace, the beauty of that is actually part of what changes us. How does that work? Well, Jonathan Edwards in his writings and in his sermons picked up on this so often. Again, I mentioned a few weeks ago that we tend to think of Jonathan Edwards as this harsh preacher from uh, America's past in the 1700s, and we, we think maybe of that one sermon where he preached about sinners in the hands of an angry God, which actually was used to spark a great revival in New England. But much, in fact, the majority of Edwards' preaching and writing was about the beauty and the tenderness and the glory of Christ and the goodness of heaven. And Edwards picks up on this point often in his sermons, and Edwards was enthralled with the beauty of the Godhead and the beauty of Christ. And Edwards would often refer to that the beauty that when our soul beholds the beauty of Christ, the beauty, the radiant beauty of Christ is actually when we see it, what changes us. He speaks of the greatness of God as being something that the sinner looks at and is overwhelmed and judged by, but it's the goodness of God in Christ that actually changes a sinner's heart. Listen to what he says. 
In his sermon called True Grace, Distinguished from the Experience of Devils, he says, it is a sight of the divine beauty of Christ that bows the will and draws the hearts of men. One glimpse of the moral and spiritual glory of God and supreme amiableness of Jesus Christ shining into the heart overcomes and abolishes this opposition and inclines the soul to Christ, as it were, by an omnipotent power. And what Edwards is getting at here is that one of the ways, maybe the primary way that Christ changes his people and doesn't leave them in their sin, is that his grace towards them, his tenderness towards them, his mercy towards them is so altogether more lovely than anything we see on this earth, that the beauty of that draws us and in is of itself transformative in the heart of a weak sinner as they see it in Christ. But let's not believe that because Edwards said it in a sermon 250 years ago. Let's only believe that because it's in the Bible. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I think this is what Edwards is building on. And this is why I think Edwards is right. Because what he says is supported by the Bible. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, verse 18, with unveiled face, meaning we can clearly see, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So notice what Paul is saying here under the inspiration of the Spirit. He's saying that to truly see Jesus, if you can see him in his tenderness and his mercy and his high priestly love towards you, that in and of itself, if we can see that, if we behold the glory and the goodness and the tenderness of God in Christ, it will cause us to be transformed from one image to another, from one degree of glory to another. No, dear friends, do not mistake his tenderness for complacency. When we see his tenderness, we change. We change. Before we move on, just consider. Consider how tender Christ has been to you, dear one. Listen to Paul's perspective as he writes to a young pastor. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice how the apostle, Paul, who wrote maybe half of the New Testament, and who is used by God in unusually mighty ways, describes himself the chiefest of sinners. Do you feel this way about yourself? If not, then maybe that's an indication that you have not truly understood the gravity of your sin and the greatness of God's grace. Yes, there are lots of wicked people around us to our right and to our left. 
My friends, the question now is your own soul. Do, do, do you, here's my point. I'm not sure we will ever see the tenderness of Christ unless we are acquainted with our own wickedness in and of ourselves. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, who could stand? Friends, do you feel that way? Do you feel the tenderness of Christ for yourself? Sometimes this is hard for people that grew up in the church that lived, in, I, in air quotes, sort of relatively good lives. We sort of see ourselves as growing into this thing, kind of receiving it, just sort of out of tradition or heritage. Friends, know the testimony of the scriptures. If he should mark our iniquities, who could stand? I think of that old spiritual, not my brother, not my sister, but me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not the preacher, not the deacon, but me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Do you feel the tenderness of Christ for you? Spurgeon said, you are a great sinner, but he is a great Savior. Come, Goliath sinner, the son of David can save even you. And what do you do when you feel that, that weight, when you see the, the beautiful tenderness of Christ towards you? It frees you from running and hiding and posing and pretending. And it allows you, as verse 16 of our, set, of our text says, to then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace, grace to help in our time of need. Not folded arms of disgust, but grace from a tender Savior. That's the doctrine. Christ is tender towards his people. The application, quickly, and we end with this, is that therefore his people should be tender towards one another. I am particularly concerned about this now during this setting and this time in the history of our church and this time of stress and tension that we feel culturally. Let me read some scripture and make some concluding thoughts and pray. And all of this in view that we should be, in light of Christ's tenderness towards us, we should be tender towards one another. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Colossians 3. 12 through 14, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Romans 12, verse 9 and following, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in prayer, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
never be wise in your own sight. One of the things that this has produced in me is that I am just confident that my opinion of what we should be doing is right. And the scripture runs contrary to my own sort of self-confidence. And it says, don't be wise in your own sight. Be humble. First Thessalonians 5, 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. And finally, Jesus speaking in John 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Not how you navigate through this with the most pristine efficiency, but if you love, if you have love for one another. So I conclude with an application to us as a people of God, as a local church, on how we should be tender towards one another. As this pandemic draws on and our patience wears thin, may we be people who are marked by convictions, yes, but also tenderness. And right after, likely, this pandemic, hopefully, Lord willing, comes to a close, we will be headed into a presidential election. And those aren't always the most unifying events in our national scene. There will be Christians who can't imagine how anyone could not vote for this president. And there will be Christians who can't imagine how anyone could vote for this president. So we'll be coming out of this time of stress right into a national election that will threaten to tear the unity of the church. May we model Christ-like tenderness towards one another. May we have patience with leaders, both nationally, politically, and in the church. May you have patience with your leaders. Friends, we are approaching in the coming weeks a time where churches across our land will have to make very difficult decisions about when they should meet. And quite frankly, and this is not a criticism of our governmental leaders because I think they're doing the best they can, but there are so many different levels, it's very confusing. you, You hear one thing one day and another thing the next, and then you have city and state and national leaders, and it seems at times to be conflicting reports. All of this has come about, and all of this is pressing in on church leaders, and 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 the question is, how are we going to do this? What's the right call? What's the balance between gathering back together in faith and prudence about public health? But the thing is, friends, I think the test will not be so much that we execute some pristine, perfect leadership decision, but that we walk in tenderness and patience towards one another. Friends, that will be the most important mark of churches in the coming days. And when we do gather together, there will be difficulties and decisions to be made, not only the timing of when we gather, but the details of what it looks like. It will likely include some sort of measures of social distancing, maybe multiple services, maybe a postponement of children's ministry for a while. And I just want to make a confession pastorally, and I think I probably speak for the other leaders of this church, that there is some measure of fear in me, some measure of anxiety in me, about whether or not we're going to strike the right tone, whether or not we're going to hit this right thing. And I confess that to you and I ask you to pray for us and for you and for all of us to be tender and patient with one another. Friends, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity not for the church to execute every decision with perfect precision and wisdom, although we will try, but this is an opportunity for us to be 
tender towards one another, as our opinions are on opposite ends of the spectrum for not only what we should do with this coronavirus, but what we will do with the new election. And the challenge will be not that we all agree, but that in our disagreements, we are tender and patient towards one another, that we bear with one another. And what will catch, I end with this, what will catch the attention of the world is not the efficiency and the proficiency of the way churches go about their business, but the tenderness and the gentleness and the Christ-likeness with which churches go about their life together, even as they work out their differences internally. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 says this, a great promise. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. In other words, God is so sovereign that even as we're limping along on the parade path to glory, he all, we're going to victory. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? That's a rhetorical question, meaning no one. But Christ enables us to be sufficient, right? Verse 17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity is commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Christ is tender towards his people. And his people should be tender towards one another. Let me pray. Father, help us see this. Help us see the heart of Christ. Help us see just how beautiful your tenderness is. And as our brother Jonathan Edwards said hundreds of years ago, may the beauty of the tenderness of our high priest bow our wills and change our dispositions to make us more like Christ. And as Paul says, become from one degree of glory to another more like him. And then let it produce in us a tenderness towards one another, a long-suffering an eternal love that transcends temporary opinions for one another so that we might be a clearer picture, a sweeter aroma of Christ to an onlooking world as you bring us all the way home. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless, dear ones. We will see you, Lord willing, next week online. Have a great week.